All set there, Pat, anytime. Welcome again, my friends, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Of course, you're plugged into the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. Now, we get on the air every weekend uh, because of the uh, efforts and the talent of Alan Dempsey. I couldn't do it without him. And Andrew Herdliska produces the show each weekend. And in this first segment, Dr. Eric Redmond is with us. Uh, He's in the Chicago area, professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute, the famous Christian university. It's a beauty. And, And he's the editor of Say It, celebrating expository preaching in the African American tradition. Eric, wonderful to visit with you. How are you doing? Pat, it's so good to be on your show today. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on. Before we plunge into your book, uh, I want you to tell me about the Moody Bible Institute and why it's such an important part, uh, not just of the city of Chicago, but of our country. The Moody Bible Institute has been here since. For, for a couple of centuries now, we have 135 years of existence of training men and women of all walks of life in understanding the scriptures and preparing them for a life of, of service to neighbor and in the church. Wh- whatever you are doing, traditionally we have help train people to go in vocational ministry. But the vision of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was always much broader uh, than that. And so he was training people so that they could live out their Christian worldview wherever they worked, wherever they played, wherever they lived, wherever they might uh, reside. And Moody still holds to the Scriptures being the Word of God, and is still sending out thousands to go to billions of people around the world who have not yet heard the gospel. And so it is a tremendous place there in Chicago and our history, and I'm so thankful to work there. Eric, uh, tell me about your book and why it was important to put this together. So, uh, Say It, that celebrates expository preaching in the African-American tradition is combining two ideas. The African-American tradition is a particular way of speaking of churches that would be how we think of the African-American church historically and in the, in the media. The church that began back in the slavery period, that helped African-American people navigate their way through Jim Crow and the Civil Rights uh, era, era, that when you think of very high-spirited worship and gospel music uh, singing, that this is the sort of thing that we're talking about. In contrast to uh, newer uh, African-American churches that might not so much have historical, social, cultural, maybe even political associations in the tradition of the African-American community. We're combining that with looking at a mode of preaching, and that is a preaching that explains the scriptures based on the central idea of the passage of, of script, scripture. That is, not that it's not something that African-Americans have always done. In fact, that is part of this history. But you don't associate that with the tradition. And what we're saying in this book is you can have the best of faithful preaching that explains the world, Word of God, and you can still enjoy the tradition if you're African-American, or for outsiders, you shouldn't think of the tradition as not having expository preaching. I want you to get into part one, uh, black preaching and black hermeneutic got to explain that word to us, a background for biblical exposition. You need to explain the word exposition. Mm-hmm. Go. So, hermeneutic. Now, at Moody, my primary 
role in teaching in the Bible department is to teach in the discipline of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word for interpretation. It is the art and science of interpretation. You can have hermeneutics in law. There are law courses in hermeneutics. There's hermeneutics in literature, Western literature, Eastern literature. There, there's hermeneutics in computer science, and there are even courses in nursing in hermeneutics. So hermeneutics, the word itself, has to do with interpretation. But we're looking at biblical interpretation and what contributes to faithful interpretation of the Word of God so that we are recovering what the author intended us for us to grab and not just bringing our own meanings to the passage. Just very quickly, uh, uh, let me take a detour and give an example. For example, in Romans chapter 6, when Paul speaks of us uh, being baptized in Christ in Romans uh, 6 and verse 4, we often associate that with water baptism. But Paul has been talking about having died with Christ, having been buried with Christ, being raised with him, and those are elements of what we call our mysterious union with Christ. And so if he's talking about mysterious union and he mentions being baptized in Christ, then he's talking about mysterious union baptism or spiritual baptism. He's not talking about water, but we, we love to bring water uh, there. And so we're trying to get tools so you can understand how to read biblical literature, or really, they're just the tools for reading and understanding the sort of things good literature courses teach on how to understand an E.E. Cummings or Wadsworth or Shakespeare or something, something like that. Now, there are, there's a way that African Americans have approached the scriptures somewhat differently than others because they try to look at scripture in light of their experiences of African Americans, particularly the slavery experience in American history, and look at the scriptures dealing with slavery, the Exodus in particular, and try to understand their lives in light of that. This is why the African American experience of the slave was that he did not accept what the slaveholders said about uh, slavery, but you could read the Exodus story and see, it looks like God wants to liberate people from slavery, and read the parts of Scripture that were not being told to them in the New Testament about slavery. So what the African-American expositor is trying to do, exposition or exposit is a word for explaining. When combined with preaching, the art of expositional preaching is to look at the author's central idea in the passage, his idea, and explain the passage in light of that. You would think of it as, your listeners might think of it as verse-by-verse preaching, where the verses explain the unity of the passage. Well, now we've got to say, how do I make the explanation of the passage meaningful to the African-American listener, especially in light of many experiences, present and past, that are associated with all sorts of injustices, disenfranchisement, uh, suffering, etc. That is what we're looking at at the beginning of the book. How are we supposed to understand that and still affirm the tradition, but yet say the scriptures have the final authority? Dr. Eric Redmond is with us from Chicago. His book, Say It, he's edited this book. Uh, Eric, I want you to... Uh, uh, get us into part two, biblical exposition of the Old Testament. Uh, what are some highlights here? So, I am on another project in which I am writing a commentary on two books of the Old Testament. And when the editor called me some years ago, he said to me, you know, there are are not a lot of people who really understand how to explain what is going on in Old Testament passages. He said, can you please join us on this project? So I actually have three books in the, in the project. Um, when we were doing this book, Say It, we understood that explaining passages of the Old Testament 
is often difficult because we're so unfamiliar with the type of literature in the Old Testament. We, we're not really familiar with how stories work. We, we grew up as children learning that fables had morals to them. But sometimes we didn't understand that the author is trying to make a point with the story. So in one of my interpretation classes, I use the example of the three little pigs. And I explained that the three little pigs is not just a nice story uh, in which, you know, three pigs in the, in the sanitized version or one pig in the actual version beats the wolf trying to attack them. Our guest is Eric Redmond. When we come back, I want to hear the rest of that story, Eric, but we've got to take a break right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Stay with us. Dr. Eric Redmond is our guest. And Eric, uh, just before the break, uh, you had us uh, absolutely enthralled as you were telling us about the three little pigs. Uh, pick it up from there. I don't want to miss this. Oh, no. I'm so glad to finish this, this story. So the three little pigs is a story of trying to teach children how to make their fortune in the world. The original story starts this way. There was a mother pig. She had three little pigs. And she sent them out into the world to make their fortune. Here's how you make your fortune. Don't build with uh, straw or uh, wood. You build with brick so you can withstand the wolves of life. It was a, but we don't think of stories that way. So we don't think of trying to read a Joshua chapter 5 or a Genesis chapter 13 for what is the point the author is trying to get to? And so once you figure out what the author is trying to get to, then you explain the whole chapter, a whole passage in light of that. That's how you do exposition of Old Testament. The same thing with Psalms or Proverbs or prophetic books. We're often not familiar with how to work through those, though they're some of our favorite passages. And so I gathered guys that knew how to work through them and show others how to read them if you're lay people, or how to preach them if you're the preacher. Now, Eric, I want you to uh, take us to the next level, which is part three, biblical exposition of the New Testament. Uh, Why is that different uh, from the Old Testament? What, what, What can you tell us? So we are much more familiar with the New Testament than we are Old Testament. Just our history, especially as Protestants since the time of the Reformation, we have focused on books that speak to the Church, especially Romans, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, Hebrews. We're also fascinated with Revelation, so we spend time there. And you can't do anything in the New Testament without the Gospel. But again, Gospel material is not simple if we don't understand that each author is trying to get to something, or even that parables are trying to get to a point. We're familiar with the book of Acts, but not necessarily with the fact that Luke is trying to show how the apostles overcome every obstacle thrown in their way, whether it's an internal obstacle or external uh, obstacle. Then there's a book like Philemon. What in the world do we do with that book? So again, mm. we had to say, how is it that we understand the letters of the New Testament. What tools do we need to understand so we read those correctly? Then how do we preach that? What about apocalyptic, the book of Revelation? Apocalyptic is a word for revealing. That's why the book is called Revelation. How do we understand all those signs and symbols and make it relevant to our audience? And then, of course, what do we do with the Gospels so that we are preaching Jesus to our people? I want you to tell me... um about a chapter in this uh, part, uh, have you got good religion, expository preaching from a New Testament epistle, uh, James, and the author is none other than Paul Felix, who I know, uh, the father of the great Olympic star, Allison Felix. Uh, yes, he is. T- tell, tell me a little more about it. I'm so glad Paul joined us for the project. He and I have been 
friends for quite some time, and I really looked up to Paul. So I knew Paul to be a scholar on the book of James and in letters. And Paul carefully just is so, he explains so well to anyone reading it how to work through this passage in James and, and to follow the structure of the passage to say, this is what James means by this. And then he explains what James is doing in his passage. So he's in James 1, 26 and 27, and 26 uh, and 27 end with, true and undefiled religion is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So from there he says, what does true or good religion or faithful Christian practice that applies the scriptures, because before that is, do not be merely hearers of the word, but be doers. What does that life look like? And so Paul explains each part in light of the fact that James says, this is what true Christian life should look like in practice. And it has to do with the care of the needy, the orphans, uh, and the widows, people who cannot help you. And then that's not enough. Christian action is not just enough. It also is internal. It has to do with our personal sanctification, keeping oneself unspotted from the world, and he explains explains that. And he shows that one is not better than the other. Both are needed. We need to be people who are working on personal holiness, not apart from our cultural engagement. Neither are we people who are only involved in cultural engagement, but not watching that we are honoring the Lord in our personal walk. It is he works works through it brilliantly so that you can see how to work through any passage in the letters. I want to jump to the conclusion of the book, a case for a regular diet of preaching through a biblical book. Uh, can you explain that to us? Yes, my favorite chapter in the book. So, modern evangelical preaching especially, has started to veer towards saying, let's do topical and topics Sunday to Sunday and not work our way through books of, of Scripture. There are some who are still emphasizing working through books of Scripture. But the move to topical started because people felt working through books did not meet the relevant and practical needs of the audience audiences. But again, I say that problem comes from not understanding how each different literature in the scriptures work. Once you understand the literature, then we can work hard and, and meditate and seek the spirit and find how to apply to our various needs in our lives. But the Scriptures are written in such a way as for us to walk through books. I mean, Genesis is trying to get us from the creation account to the end of the Joseph story, and Exodus is trying to pick up from there and get us to a place where God dwells among his people. It wasn't written so that we could just pick and choose our passages, although devotionally that is something that we, we often do. But that shouldn't be our steady diet for growing us. The Lord gave the scriptures in letters, in books, in poems, in stories, so that we could read them as wholes. So what we've done at that part of the book is said, here's why you need to walk people through a book of the Bible. If you don't walk them through a book, there'll be things that you never uh, uh, cover. If you, if you don't walk through 1 Corinthians, the whole thing, you, you might get the, the issue of church discipline in chapter 5, but you'll skip the issue of lawsuits in chapter 6 or marriage, divorce, and remarriage in chapter 7. We need all of that. And so we make the case for it and then show how a layperson or a preacher can work their way through a book of Scripture in order to hear God's voice on everything he is saying in the Scriptures. 
Dr. Eric Redman is our guest, uh, professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, he's the editor of Say It, uh, celebrating expository preaching in the African-American tradition. Uh, Eric, who are some of the African-American preachers, current or in the past, that are heroes of yours? So, in the past, uh, Dr. William L. Banks, who was a pastor in Philadelphia and was the first African-American professor to be residential faculty at Moody Bible Institute also, uh, he was one of my heroes. He was a very careful expositor of the scriptures in a day where we didn't hear lots of names of uh, ex- expositors. Uh, a. Lewis Patterson, who was out of Houston, who was gone to be with the Lord, was a very famous African-American uh, expositor, as was E.K. Bailey, was uh, one of my uh, heroes, so was uh, E.B. Hill. But then, in a modern day, one of my heroes contributes to the book, Pastor Terry D. Streeter of the Mount Pleasant Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., is an incredible expositor of Scripture, I say, uh, second to none, not that there's a competition, but just his ability to look at what God is saying through the author in a text, explain it to people, then tell us how to honor Christ in our living on the basis of the text is incredible. And he's very sensitive to different cultures, to African-American cultures, to broader cultures. And I've just marveled at his ability to preach week to week. And his claim to fame, one of the reasons he's my hero, is this. Each Sunday he has two services and in his congregation— And in the morning, he's making an exposition of one book of the Scripture. And at the 11 o'clock hour, so he has one service at uh, 7.30 a.m., at the 11 o'clock hour, he's doing a different book of Scripture, and each book is in a different testament, so that at all times, he's preaching through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And anyone that has ever preached knows it's hard enough to prepare one sermon for Sunday, and he's preparing two every Sunday and has been doing that for more than 35 years. Wow. Eric, let me tell you uh, three of my <clears throat> African-American preaching heroes, Dr. Tony Evans in Dallas, uh, mm-hmm. Willie Richardson in Philadelphia, yes, and Dr. Fred Luter in New Orleans. Those, those Fred are, and I are friends, yes. <laughs> th- those are three of my heroes. and, uh, and They are uh, tremendous preachers. And uh, I got to tell you a quick story. Tony Evans, we go to First Baptist Orlando, uh, Mm -hmm. a large, large church, uh, 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 primarily white, but uh, not not totally. Mm -hmm. And and so Tony Evans has come in at a different time, and so so was Fred Luter. Uh, And that church will never be the same after hearing (laughs) after hearing those two guys. I mean, they got a taste a good taste of African-American preaching, and our, our church just ate it up. Couldn't get enough. Yes, and both of them are good expositors of the Word of God, and I have appreciated their ministry. So thankful for them. But the way they present it is so colorful and so interesting and so exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's magnificent to watch. Uh, I've often said, uh, Eric, that the best— uh, just pure public speaking that's going on in our country uh, is taking place in the in the pulpits of primarily African American churches. Uh, I mean, just just pure speaking skills. Uh, that's my observation. What do you think? The African American pulpit is known for its rhetoric, for its communication, its language his skills, as you said, colorful, or some would say flowery, excuse me, it brings with it musical intonation. You'll sometimes hear African-American preachers that almost have like a singing voice underneath what they're they're preaching. It always brings great celebration uh, with it, whether you're inside the tradition or you're outside the African-American tradition. And... African-American preachers have had to figure out how to use their language to inspire people to maintain hope in some very 
extremely difficult cultural situations in the country. So they've had much practice on becoming outstanding communicators. Eric, give me 60 seconds in closing on Dr. Martin Luther King as a as a uh, presenter, as a speaker, as an expositor, or, or as a, a deliverer of, of powerful messages. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was certainly in the African-American tradition, though he would not have been classified as an expositor, but that is in part because going to schools or being around those who had exposition as their model was not an opportunity afforded to him. Yet, he had the ability to look at Scripture and to proclaim Jesus as Lord and to tell people, the whole nation, how it is that our ideas of justice and what we had embedded in our historical framing documents should be carried out by us, and he was really doing it powerfully with his words so that we could be a nation that honored God. Dr. Eric Redman has been our guest, professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. We've got more after this right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. We'll be back. Eric, that was a good half hour. Oh, thank you so much. And you know what, Pat? I'm sorry. If you guys, you didn't have a cue guy to tell me like 10 seconds or this or that. I'm sorry I ran over. No, you I didn't. We, we, oh. we, we, we hit it just right. We, we hit it. Okay. We've, got, we've got such an efficient engineer here. Uh, that he can he can hear your words before you even say them. So <laughs> good. Okay, Eric, it was great. I'm so happy to meet you uh, over the phone. And uh, what a, what a great half hour that was. That was good good listening. It was. And Pat, if there's any other way I can serve you, uh, please do not hesitate uh, to ask me. It doesn't have to be an interview. If there's another way that you feel that I can serve you, good. Uh, feel free. Well, let's just close. This is the school that D.L. Moody started. You know, okay. We'll, we'll sing the, the, the Moody National Anthem. So take care. All the best. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye, Eric. Dr. Eric Redmond, our guest in that first segment, uh, talking about his book that he's edited, Say It. Uh, we go from Chicago to St. Louis. John Anazu is with us, uh, a professor of law and religion, at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, author of Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. Uh, John, first of all, welcome. We're, we're glad to have you here in Orlando. Pat, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, that this book was, uh, was a combination with Timothy Keller. Uh, right. Tell, tell us about that man. I'm, I'm fascinated by him. Yeah, I mean, Tim is just a wonderful man, a great preacher, a great translator of Christian ideas in all kinds of places, including uh, non-Christian places. He was a pastor in Manhattan for many years, and, and kind of against odds and expectations, had a had an incredible ministry in, in Manhattan, which is often not what you think of in terms of a receptive place for Christian ideas. And I, I got to know Tim uh, a few years ago, and we discovered that what he was preaching at the time was quite close to the kinds of things I was writing about in a much different lane. I was speaking mostly to non-Christian students and faculty and some public audiences, but not necessarily in, in Christian language. And Tim was, in his sermons, talking about how we as Christians can live faithfully in a world of difference around us without compromising our convictions, but also by loving our, our neighbors well. And so Tim and I wrote an article together, and, and that article led to this book project, uh, which has been a lot of fun to do with them, and um, uh, we're, we've been really pleased and excited with how it turned out. Uh, John, if I could summarize this book, uh, I'm going to do it in a question. How can Christians today, how can they interact with those around them in a way that shows respect to those whose beliefs are radically different but that also remains faithful to the gospel, question mark. Uh, how do you respond to that? Uh, that's a great summary. Yeah, the language sounded quite familiar, and, and I think that's, that's right. And I think the question can, can be answered with some, some statements, and, and some of those statements are, 
we as Christians know that every human being we encounter is, is an image bearer. And because of that, and because we know that we're called to love everyone, love our neighbors, love our enemies, love the people of God, that we can start with that common human connection as image bearers. And then we can work really hard, even with the people who uh, disagree with us the most, who frustrate us the most, who have, who have, as you mentioned, radically different beliefs, some of them which we find morally deeply problematic and wrong, that we can still see human beings and the people we encounter. And in that, find common ground. That doesn't mean the differences don't matter. Of course they matter. And it doesn't mean that we, we can't be fully our Christian selves. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ in this world. So we need to be fully Christian in who we are, but we can start with that common shared humanity and we can work really hard to separate human beings from the ideas that they hold. Uh, John Inazu is our guest. <clears throat> so John, how did you and Timothy uh, Keller uh, bring together this thrilling range of artists, thinkers, and leaders uh, to provide a guide to faithful living in a pluralistic and fractured world. How did that happen? Yeah, you know, this was a lot of fun. As a, as a law professor, I don't spend a lot of time with uh, Grammy Award-winning hip-hop artists like Lecrae, um, but we uh, we figured out early on, Tim and I, that we wanted to have a book that was engaged primarily in storytelling. Uh, one of the things I've thought about in the last few years is Christians have lost the art of good storytelling, of sharing their lives through narrative in a way that is really reflective of what we see in the Gospels themselves. So we wanted to tell stories, and not just our own stories, but a range of stories from other Christian leaders and, and, and people who've been engaged very publicly, but in very different spaces, whether it's music or art or leadership of ministry or theology or the academy. Uh, and, and so we, we spent a, quite a bit of time trying to figure out what's the right group of people to bring together. We settled on 10, 10 people uh, in addition to us, some we knew well, some we were just getting to know. And then I think what was probably the most important aspect of this entire project is through some miracle of scheduling and back when everyone was still using airplanes, we, we were able to uh, physically gather all of the authors, all 12 of us, in St. Louis mm. for a day and a half of shared reflection and sharing each other's stories. We spent three hours the first night just just sharing stories around the table of our own uh, lives and, and you know, sometimes successes, sometimes failures, the pain points, who we are as Christians in the world, uh, the challenges we encounter. And it was so wonderful and relational to spend time with these authors. And, and at that moment, this became a, a collective, collaborative effort and not just 12 individual essays. Well, John, I want to <clears throat> dig into these 10 people, so let's get started. I'm going to give you the name, and you fill us in. Uh, Great. Let's start with Lecrae. What can you tell us? So, yeah, Lecrae, as I mentioned, he's a, he's a hip-hop artist who bridges, I think, very deftly Christian audiences and non-Christian audiences in his music. Uh, he's, he's won a number of Grammys. Uh, he's, he's incredibly gifted musician. He's also an author. He's been in a number of movies. And so just, he just uses his gifts and really the platform that God has given him to, to honor, honor God. Uh, the, the next person I want you to tell us about is Tish Harrison Warren. Tish is an Anglican priest uh, in Pittsburgh, and she has written a beautiful book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. That is a, just a great practical book published by InterVarsity Press that tells you how to think about the ordinary aspects of your way and of your day in a way that uh, reminds you of who you are as, as, a, as a Christian and, and how you can honor God and things like making a sandwich or making your bed or being with your kids. And it's just a, it's just a lovely book. She's an excellent writer. And now tell us about Kristen D.D. Johnson. Uh, so Chris, Kristen is a theologian and uh, has a PhD in uh, religious theological ethics and teaches now at Western Seminary in, in Michigan and has written uh, quite beautifully about a number of topics. Her most recent book is called The Justice Calling, and I think so critically it helps Christians see why issues and matters of, of justice are important and close to God's heart, but also how and why they are rooted in Scripture. Because I think, in my sense, is a lot of people today talk about justice in, 
have a, have a sense of caring for it, but don't always know how to bring it back to Scripture. And Kristen and her co-author in that recent book have done that in a beautiful way. By the way, by the way, John, how did you find these people? Yeah, you know, so uh, <laughs> this was great. I mean, we'll, we'll chalk it up to some some prayer and guidance from the Lord. A number of these folks were either good friends of mine or good friends of Tim's, and then there were a few who we just knew through common connections. Um, and, but it was really, uh, we were just so grateful that almost everybody we asked was able to join the project and was excited to do so. And, and so we came together as a, as a unique group, but one in which there were already some deep friendships. Uh, John, tell us about Claude Richard Alexander. Uh, Bishop Claude Alexander is a, is a pastor of a black church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also, uh, for many years, had led the largest coalition of black churches in the country. And, and Claude is someone who, I think, very remarkably, uh, as a black pastor who, who is in the black church, but also feels very called to be building bridges into uh, other mostly white Christian organizations. He serves on the board of Christianity Today, of Gordon Conwell College, of InterVarsity. Uh, just an extremely gifted and, and godly man. Uh, now I want you to tell us about Shirley Hoogstra. Uh, Shirley comes out of the academy. She used to be the provost at Calvin College, and she now runs an organization called the Council for Christian Colleges and universities, which is the umbrella organization uh, for about 150 or 60 Christian colleges and universities around the country. And now it's time to talk about Sarah Groves. Yeah, Sarah Groves might be a familiar name to some of your listeners. She's a a musician who's done a number of uh, Christian uh, songs and albums over the years, is is incredibly gifted songwriter, songwriter, singer, pianist, uh, currently lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, and works now at the intersection of how, how, how Christians can be hospitable to artists and other makers in the world and give them spaces to create. Now, <clears throat> tell me about Rudy Carrasco. Uh, Rudy, I, I got to know most recently through this project. Uh, Rudy has worked in a number of different areas, uh, connecting people through entrepreneurial activities, he was for a time on the board of the Christian Community Development Association, and most recently as a program officer at the Murdoch Charitable Trust in the Northwest. And now, tell me about Trillia Newbell. Uh, Trillia is an author and a speaker uh, who was formerly with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention and has most recently moved to be the acquisition editor at a Christian press, and uh, a beautiful writer who writes at the intersection of race and reconciliation and what it means to be uh, Christians who are witnessing and and vibrant in in this part of the world. And how about Tom Lynn? Tom is the current president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, has spent much of his career uh, on staff with InterVarsity and became the president a few years ago and and focused uh, as InterVarsity is on both college campus ministry around the country, but also mission mission engagement around the world and uh, leading this, I think, crucial and important organization right now. And then tell us about Warren Kinghorn. Warren is a uh, a rare breed of the theologian and the medical doctor. So he has both an MD and a PhD mm. in theology, and he is on the faculty of Duke University, both at the Divinity School and the Medical Center, and works on some fascinating issues, including uh, the, the PTSD and veterans and how we can care better for our troops returning, and uh, and also at the intersection of theology and medicine. John Inazu is with us, who help put this book together. So, John, as you have run down those 10 names, is it safe to say that they all show us how to live with confidence, joy, and hope in a complex and fragmented age? I, I hope that's safe to say. That's, that's in large part why we, we chose them for their life experiences, but also for how they communicate that. And I think, you know, as, as you just heard, from very different spaces of vocation and job and calling, but all in working in complex areas and complex ways, but wanting to do so 
that shows gospel confidence and love of neighbor at the same time. Maybe another way of uh, of, of digging into that, uh, is it safe to say that all of these people uh, think deeply and, and how to work daily to live with humility, patience, and tolerance in our time? Uh, yes, that's right. Um, and, and rooted in humility, patience, and tolerance, but rooted in faith, hope, and love. So all of these contributors are, are Christians who... You know, starting in the day by thinking about what what is God doing in my life and what has He called me to do, and how can I engage uh, with my neighbor uh, across difference with these with these values that are really ultimately rooted in Christian virtues, and how can the Lord guide me in my work to do this? And it's not easy, right? But in some ways, uh, it's a lifetime of learning, uh, as I'm sure you know, that gets you to greater patience and greater humility and greater love of neighbor. John, I want to hear more about how you got 12 busy people um, all together at one time in one city for, I guess, the better part of a day. Uh, That would seem almost logistically impossible. (laughs) But it happened. Yeah, it did happen, uh, and it, it, especially now as you and I are talking, and you know, with, with air travel so complicated by the virus and everything else, it's very hard to think uh, even how it how it happened. A number of these folks have have agents or different people working with them, so it's hard sometimes to be in touch with them. But you know, I really think by by God's grace and just by by the timing we and and by prioritizing this, when Tim and I reach out to people, we said. One of the most important things, if you're able to join us, is that we we need to meet in person because we need to get that relational time around the table and experience each other as human beings in person. And so I think people, you know, to their credit, all of our contributors jumped at that opportunity and made it happen. I think Trillia had to catch up, you know, a 4 a.m. flight to get there in time. And there were other sorts of uh, scheduling miracles that happened. Uh, And then. My guest is John Inazu. We've got another segment with John. Uh, The book is called Uncommon Ground, Living Faithfully in a World of Difference. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, and it's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Uh, We'll be back with John right after this. John Inazu is with us from St. Louis, uh, talking about the book, Uncommon ground. John, earlier you mentioned the word storytelling. Uh, I want you to explain more about that and why is it so important and why is it that we learn from stories and why is it we're hardwired to retain stories and not PowerPoints? Can can you delve into that? <laughs> yeah, I'll try to. You know, I mean, I think, I think stories remind us of how we are created as people to live in the world and we're connected through stories and through relationships and stories allow us to tell about the relationships and the people who have shaped our lives. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a teacher at a university, so I often don't tell stories. I often convey knowledge and use the PowerPoints and that, that plays an important role in our, in society, but, but something about storytelling connects us in much deeper ways and allows us to communicate even more and greater than, than mere words. And so I, I think there's something that we all intuit about the power of stories. And then it lets us talk out of our own experience. And I think as Christians especially, when we're called to testify and witness to the world, we're not called to do so with just a set of propositions. We're called to do so with the lives that God has given us. With these 10 people... <clears throat> Are there a couple of stories that they had that really uh, stood out for you? Uh, there were there were so many kind of beautiful and compelling ones. Uh, Warren Kinghorn, my medical doctor friend at Duke, uh, talked about his his own experience uh, growing up with a grandfather who had defended segregation at Clemson University. Uh, so as a white man in the South, uh, Warren, dealing with that legacy and owning it in some ways, and then also trying to figure out what does it mean to be a medical doctor in 2020 in, in the South and how to live live authentically 
into his own story and his own history. Um, Julia Newball talked about just incredibly painful and hard friendships that she had to overcome uh, in order to be who she is. Tish Warren talked about the the struggles and the doubts of whether she even was a, a writer and an author. Here's somebody who ended up writing the Christianity Today book of the year, but wasn't even sure that she was uh, supposed to be a writer for a long time. And so I think that stories of, of doubt and of pain and of uncertainty, but then that led to trust are the ones that stand out the most. I want you to <clears throat> go a little deeper even yet, uh, John. It's one thing to have a story. We all have stories. Uh, but how you share that story seems to be the key. Are you? Am I right on that? Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it, Pat. I think that's exactly right. And and so we we share stories by first taking into account who our audience is. If we just start talking and don't know who we're talking to, we're also we're often going to misconnecting. We might have the most important thing in the world to say, but if the people we're speaking to don't understand it because we haven't taken the time to know them, then we're just kind of speaking to a wall. And so I think telling stories in a way that knows and connects with an audience, telling stories in a way that is charitable, uh, that that is loving, that doesn't use snark, but uses patience in the storytelling. I think all of these things are, are ways that we can do this well. And then I think for Christians, telling stories that are true to who we've been called to be and true to our faith and, and the gospel so that that don't compromise who we're supposed to be in the world. John, I'm <clears throat> intrigued with your um, your background, uh, a distinguished professor of law and religion at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, um, I, well, usually it works pretty well. I, I have a joint appointment at the school, and so I teach half-time in the law school, uh, teaching law students how to be lawyers. And the other half of my time is teaching undergraduates with more big ideas. What is the intersection, for example, of law, politics, and religion? What are the big issues, and how can we think about them better? And so I, I love the blend of, of teaching future lawyers and also teaching undergraduates. And then a lot of my work is at the intersection of these important issues around the First Amendment and uh, related questions. Tell me um, about Washington University in St. Louis. Tell me about that school. Sure. So, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a school in the Midwest with about 6,000 students, undergraduates, and uh, usually considered sort of one of the top research universities in the country. So uh, good professional schools, great undergraduates, uh, really good med- medical schools. And uh, it's a school that is largely, uh, you know, it's never been a Christian school and, and not many Christians on the campus. So, but we do have we do have a few. And so we have a ministry of Christian faculty at Washington University called the Carver Project, and we've got 16 tenured, tenure-track Christian faculty who are really good at what we do and wanting to love and serve the university, its students, and our colleagues, and who are just happy to be there and happy to be there as Christians. Uh, so I found it a, an engaging place to work. It's not always, uh, you know, it's not always the, the easiest place to be as a Christian, but it's also a place where I can confidently be who I am. John, tell me about the city of St. Louis that you live in. How do you describe St. Louis to one who's never been there? Yeah, I think St. Louis is, a, is, a, is an amazing and a complicated place. And so St. Louis, it's one of those cities that used to be one of, one of the biggest and most thriving cities in the country, really. Back in the early 20th century, it hosted the Olympics and the World's Fair uh, and then, like many cities in this region of the country, has, has suffered a lot of challenges, uh, ec- racial, economic, political, and otherwise, uh, and is still grappling with those. Famously, in the news, with the 2015 shooting of, of Michael Brown and uh, racial tensions around Ferguson, and still a lot of work to do, but my sense is that there are people here in the city who are committed to this place, and who are committed to each other. And I hope that in some ways I can be part of the, the people and institutions that are working towards bettering this place. What do the St. Louis Cardinals mean to the city? 
<laughs> well, anyone who's been to St. Louis knows that the Cardinals are a big, big deal. When we first moved here, uh, it was it was unmistakable that this was uh, Cardinal Nation out here, as they like to say. And and when the Cardinals are doing well, the the city is is focusing on them. We also got we've got a hockey team too, though the Blues did pretty well this uh, this past round as well. Also, um, what did your years at Duke University mean to you, John? Yeah, well, thanks, Brett. We were talking that you were a Wake Forest grad, and I went to Duke. Uh, I, I loved my experience at Duke, uh, primarily because of the Christian fellowship I found through InterVarsity and also a local church, Blacknell Presbyterian Church, uh, that were so formative in who I was as a Christian. Duke was a great place, but obviously itself not a Christian school. Uh, but it was it was so important to me to have those Christian friends and mentors along the way, and and then also getting to see some really good college basketball. I was there too. John um, uh, Duke started out, you know, a, a build as a Methodist school. Uh, Wake Forest started out for you know for a century or more as a Baptist school. Uh, they lost those roots somewhere, but uh, they both started out really primarily as church schools. Uh, the Methodists and the Baptists. So that's an uh, interesting little background. For sure, yeah. And really the Ivy League, Harvard and Yale and all those schools as well had, had deeply Christian backgrounds as they began. And then like like institutions often do, have changed quite a bit. And uh, you're right to say that most of those schools have, have very little of that influence remaining. John, I want you, um, we've got about a minute left. Uh, I want you to summarize uncommon ground and um, what it can mean to people. Well, yeah, I would think that I would just say that Christians of all people should be leading the way to engage in a world of difference with faith and confidence. Uh, Because we place our hope ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we know how the big story ends, and so we can all be part of our little stories toward that end in a way that is gracious and compassionate with those around us, but is also true to who we are and what we believe. John Inazu. John, I'm so glad you could visit with us. Thanks a million. Uh, Congrats on your book, and uh, I look forward to meeting you along the way. Sounds great, Pat. It was great to be with you. Thanks so much. John Inazu from St. Louis, uh, author of Uncommon Ground. We've got a wrap-up right after this, right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We gather like this every weekend. And we're always so pleased when you join us. We'll be right back.